Another public service announcement from Real Cream. Finally, someone has reinvented the wheel. Hey, uh, you tuned into the ravings of a clown on Just Radio. <laughs> Don't argue with the boss. Roger, we'll go. It's as good as done. The complete solution for your home PC. Back away slowly from the fire. Shh. Hello, my name is Jimmy Pop, and I'm a dumb white guy. I'm not old or new, but middle school, fifth grade, like junior high. I don't know, Mofo. Fucking giving props to my whole fly, but I can take the heat because I'm known as Kid Funky. Like planet Pluto, hard to see with the naked eye. But if I crashed into Uranus, I would stick it where the sun don't shine. Cause I'm kinda like Han Solo, always stroking my own Wookiee on the root of all that's evil. The root of all that's evil, baby. You can call my cooker. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water, let the motherfucker burn. Burn, motherfucker. Burn. Oh, man. I don't know about you, man, but that just... Ah, that double slam right there, that just takes all my blues away. And then when he goes yo-yo, that's just the... Here we go. Yo, yo. Now that's it. That's just, that completes the circuit for me. And I just feel, I just, all my tensions and stress and problems and questions of the day, they just melt away when I hear that song. Because that's what I want this time of ours to be, you know? Just let the motherfucker burn. There is no time that you can really slice out of your day that's not, you know, going to be fucking interrupted by life. The fires are going to continue to burn. You just have to walk away. Put your feet up, your head back. That's correct. You do have head back permission for the duration of the show for the next 120 minutes. Just uh, this will be our time. And by the way, I say our time, but it's also a good time to snuggle up with somebody that you care a great deal about, laugh together, argue together, you know, talk about the issues uh, amongst yourselves. It's a great moment to spark, you know, uh, important uh, couples' dialogue. It's important to explore each other's opinions about your views of the world. 
And, you know, it's okay if you play with each other a little bit. Go right ahead. Be my guest. I'm not even... Listen, I have no pants. So who am I to talk? And if you're alone, like me, like the old jester this evening, can scooch around over here and uh, hang out with me this evening. You'll be my special partner for the evening. It's Wednesday, July the 2nd, the year of our Lord, 2008. And my, oh my, the time does fly, doesn't it? It just seems like only yesterday it was July 1st. And uh, we had some uh, technical problems here at the studio yesterday, so that's why I apologize. We didn't um, get on the air, and I, I just feel awful about that. But um, I do appreciate you all come swarming back tonight, like my, the mindless uh, insects that you are, uh, to give us another shot. Seems you've been doing that off and on for the past decade, and i got to say, what the fuck is up with that? Because it just seems, I don't know. No, seriously, I do. I love it. I appreciate I appreciate uh, your company. Uh, you know I do this in lieu of therapy. Uh, we're going to take a look at what's going on in that sick fucking world of yours this evening. Plus, uh, maybe talk about what's going on in that sick fucking world of mine. Also, such a playlist, uh, including the likes of Bob Seger, Melanie, Phil Oaks, Cat Stevens, Aaron Nelville, The Vogues. And so much more. Plus, there's room on that list, believe it or not, as cram-packed as it is with high-quality music. There's still some room on there for your request. Get them in early um, uh, or not at all. That's not what I meant to say. But get them in early in any case. Because <laughs> it's just, I don't know, get them in early. It's good for me. That's why. Um, com is the place to go to to lodge a request. Click on request. Tell us what you want to hear. We'll get it on the air and lickety split. Also, uh, 646-502-8600 gets you live on the air with your old pal, the jester. If you have something to say, then dial in that number. If you have nothing to say, then keep that number handy because something we're going to bring up during the course of the evening is going to piss you off and you're going to want to have that number handy to quickly dial in. And let off some steam. 646-502-8600. It's just an ordinary call to a downtown New York City telephone line where it's forwarded to us at our secret location outside your universe. So there's no um, worry in incurring um, some kind of ungodly extra tariffs. And that may be the first time I've actually even uttered that word. Time now to turn our attention to the headlines from high atop Jess Radio Studios in a secret location outside your universe. Is that loud enough? Is there any way to do that louder? Next time? Okay. Colombian spies tricked the uh, leftist rebels into handing over kidnapped presidential candidate Ingrid Betancourt and three U.S. military contractors today in a daring helicopter rescue so successful that not a single shot was fired. Now that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of fucking kick-ass and take-names type of operation you want to see the United States pulling off every fucking Wednesday. 
When's the last time we heard some fucking good news about a foreign military operation? Check this out, man. We got to figure out who is the general behind this fucking uh, maneuver and make him the fucking president. Because this guy pulled off the most awesome fucking operation. I guarantee you by this time next week, it's going to be ABC Movie of the Week. Bentoncourt, who was seized on the campaign trail six long years ago, appeared thin but healthy as he strode down the stairs of a military plane and held her mother in a long embrace. Thank you for your impeccable operation, she told military commanders. The operation was perfect. Eleven Colombian police and soldiers were also freed in the rescue, the most serious blow ever dealt to the 44-year-old Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, which considered the four hostages their most valuable bargaining chips. The FARC is already reeling from the deaths of key commanders and the loss of much of the territory it once held. Defense Minister Juan Manuel Santos said military intelligence agents infiltrated the guerrilla ranks, so there were spies among them, and led the local commander in charge of the hostages, alias Cesar, to believe that they were going to take them to Alfonso Cano, the guerrilla supreme leader. The hostages who had been divided in three groups were taken to... So they came to this guy who's in charge of the hostage taking and keeping. He's, you know, minister in charge of hostages for this fucking government. And he had a bunch of spies amongst him, three spies. And they went to him one night and they said, listen, we've been contacted by Alfonso Cano, or Cano, the whole, the supreme leader of this whole guerrilla muckenmire. And he told us not to call him. He'll just, don't take our word for it. He told us that we're to take all the prisoners and bring them to him right away. And the guy went, okay, if you say so. It's like, you know, how the Nazis invaded Poland. You know, they just walked in backwards and said they were leaving. The hostages who had been divided in three groups were taken to a rallying point where two disguised helicopters piloted by Colombian military agents were waiting. Betancourt said that her hands and feet were bound. We were frustrated because we were handcuffed, she said. We were very indignant, very humiliated. Only when the helicopters were airborne did military crew members reveal their true identity, she said. The chief of the operation said, we're the National Army. You're free adding that the hostages were so shocked, it was as if the helicopter fell from the sky. Santos said Cesar and another rebel on board were neutralized. <laughs> See, this is where they should use the word killed. Why are they, why are they mollycoddling us now with a, a good operation where, where we'd love to fucking be revel in our bloodthirstiness? They should say he was fucking killed. They should say he was killed slowly with a shrimp fork. But he was neutralized. He didn't elaborate but said that they were unhurt and would soon face justice. Santos said the other rebel captors retreated into the jungle and the army let them escape in hopes that they will free the rest of the hostages, believed to number about 700. The operation, Santos said, will go into history for its audacity and effectiveness. We wanted to have it happen as it did today, added Armed Forces Chief General Freddie Padilla, without a single shot, without anyone wounded, absolutely safe and sound, without a scratch. This is, this is how you use the great military minds of our day to carry off an operation like this. It's just so heartening to know that there are even people alive 
that you know don't have this you know let's blast first and ask questions later mentality at a bogota ceremony with top military commanders the freed hostages walked up to the microphone one by one identified themselves by name and rank and thanked their rescuers some had been held for a dozen years captured when rebels overran military outposts. Last to speak, can you fucking imagine being shuffled around from one filthy fucking snake hole to another in some South American fucking jungle for 12 years? You just have, you have like no memory of civilization, you know? The, like you don't even know what, like remember what a McDonald's French fry smells like anymore. Last to speak was the French-Colombian Betancourt who wore military fatigues and a floppy camouflage hat as she hugged her mother, Yolando Pelleccio, and her husband, Juan Carlos Lecomte. She removed her hat to reveal intricately braided dark hair with plates framing her face and a white flower. In Paris, her son Lorenzo Deloy Betancourt called her release the most beautiful news of my life. He and other relatives were flying to Colombia to join her. The Americans, Mark Gonsalves, Thomas House, and Keith Stanzel, are flying directly to the U.S. to reunite with their families. They've been the longest-held American hostages in the history of America. Gonzalez's father, George, was mowing the yard of his Hebron, Connecticut home when an excited neighbor relayed the news that he had seen on television. I didn't know how to stop my lawnmower. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it, he said. We're still teary-eyed, not quite have our wits about us said Stanzel's stepmother. U.S. President George W. Bush, uh, Bush and French President Nicolas Sarkozy congratulated Colombia President Alvaro Uribe. Santos renewed the government's offer to negotiate with the reeling rebel movement, who many believe is nearing the end of its four-decade fight. Battlefield losses and widespread desertions have cut rebel numbers in half to about 9,000, as the United States has poured billions of dollars of military aid into Colombia. This year, historic leader Manuel Murialanda died of a reported heart attack. Two other commanders were killed. The rest are hunkered down in remote jungle and mountain hideouts, unable to communicate effectively. So they got him backed into a corner like they got bin Laden. He's irrelevant. Louis says it's Kano. It's not Kano. The body of a missing 12-year-old whose uncle allegedly planned to force her into a sex ring the day she disappeared was found uh, today in Randolph uh, near Bethel, Vermont, uh, not far from his house. State Police uh, Director Colonel James Baker said Brooke Bennett's body was found about 4.45 p.m. and that her family has been notified. The uncle, Michael Jacques, has been in custody since Sunday, as you recall, we reported earlier this week on charges of aggravated sexual assault against a different underage girl. He's pleaded not guilty to that one. Brooke was last seen alive with this snake, Michael Jacques, at a um, convenience store about a week ago. The painful discovery of Brooke's body today is tragic and heartbreaking, Baker said at a news conference. He called the death clearly suspicious, but declined to give details before a planned briefing tomorrow morning. But in an affidavit unsealed earlier, in U.S. District Court in Burlington, the FBI said an unidentified teenager told investigators she was present on June 25th when Jacques, who's 42 years old, tricked Brooke into thinking that she was going to a party and took her to his Randolph home to be initiated into a sex ring. 
12-year-old girl. Girl said that she was led to believe that Brooke would have uh, sex with uh, uh, adult males during the initiation. After the three of them got to Jacques' home, the girl said that she and Brooke watched television for a while before Jacques told her, the, the unnamed other kid, to leave and took his niece upstairs. This witness, who's 14 years old, said she left the house with a boyfriend and nobody's seen Brooke since. The 14-year-old said uh, that she herself had been having sex with this guy, Jacques, who's 42, since she was nine as part of this sex ring. And by the way, this is um, a very common thing among the predators is that they um, convince their victims into believing they're part of this big organized... And there's actually some famous document written about this, like how to enslave... um, you know, minors. Um, and part of this is like to get them to like sign a slavery contract and, uh, and tell them that if they don't sign it, they'll kill their whole family. But then if they go against the contract, they have partners all around the world secretly. And wherever she goes, whatever she does, she'll always be found and taken back and tortured and killed. So apparently he had this poor child convinced that um, he had initiated her into some kind of ring, which was probably him and his you know, bowling buds raping children. Uh, Ganyan Forty, who lives in Texas but often visited Vermont, according to the affidavit, he told police he accessed Brooks' MySpace page from a laptop computer at his home in San Antonio after getting login information from this pig, Jacques. Police said they have evidence that postings to the account were altered to make it appear that Brooke had discussed the secret rendezvous with someone identified as Skittle Me Up shortly before she disappeared. So they actually went and fucked with her website, making it look like she wrote it, and that she was going to go meet some other guys to send the cops off on a wild goose chase. Gagnon also said police uh, told the police that he had downloaded child pornography onto the laptop, according to the affidavit. In Randolph, before the announcement, Brooke's friends and family put up signs saying that they missed her and were praying for her safe return. She lived in Braintree, small town uh, near um, Bethel, um, uh, near Randolph, Vermont. To the community, thank you so much for your support and help. And I can uh, keep continuing to get that, said Brooke's mother, Cassandra Gagnon. She wore a photo pin of her daughter on her T-shirt. She said she was very surprised by her ex-husband's alleged involvement. Something, you know, something really fucking is um, like uh, Norman Bates kind of freaky uh, about these families where the mother doesn't know that her husband is raping all the children in the neighborhood and the house. And there is some kind of fucking complicity. I mean, we see cases all the time where there was a case, you know, last year where this... uh, like 18-year-old or 17-year-old kid uh, helped her boyfriend drug and rape her like an 8-year-old sister. So we see all the time where women are openly complicit, but there's this like even more insidious, freaky kind of thing where the wife is like tacitly complicitous. She kind of knows. She knows she should know. She's in self-denial. She, you know, uh, she when she hears the cries and the begging, uh, she turns up the TV so she doesn't hear it as much. And then later when she says, uh, what was that their fuss about, which is harder for her to say at being bedtime and not having her teeth in. 
and her husband, who's drunk and stinking of fucking, you know, nine-year-old pussy, uh, mutters something about, oh, I had to teach her a lesson or getting a F in math or some bullshit. And the woman just says, oh, okay, I, you know, and accepts that. Because she doesn't want to lose her man. He didn't mean it, officer. He didn't mean it. Hey, you're listening to the Ravings of a Clown this Wednesday, July the 2nd. I know that Evening's Empire has returned into sand. Vanished from my hand. Hey, Mr. Time, the rain man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to. Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me In the jingle jangle morning I come following you Though I know that evening's empire Has returned into sand Vanished from my hand Left me blindly here to stand But still not sleeping Amazes me, I am branded on my feet. I have no one to meet, and the ancient empty streets too dead for dreaming. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy, and there is no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. In the jingle jangle morning, I'll come following you. Take me on a trip upon your magic swirling ship. My senses have been stripped, my hands can't feel to grip, my toes too numb to step. Wait only for my boot heels to be wandering. To fade into my own parade, cast your dance and spill my way. I promise to go under it. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy, and there is no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. In the jingle jangle morning, I come following you. Though you might hear laughing, spinning, swinging madly across the sun, it's not aimed at anyone, it's just escaping on the run. And but for the sky, there are no fences facing. Traces of skipping reels of rhyme To your tambourine in time It's just a ragged clown behind I wouldn't pay it any mind It's just a shadow you're seeing That he's chasing Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man Play a song for me I'm not sleepy And there is no place I'm going to Tambourine man, play a song for me 
In a jingle jangle morning I come following you Smoke rings of my mind Down the foggy ruins of time Far past the frozen leaves The haunted frightened trees Out to the windy beach Far from the twisted reach Of crazy sorrow Yes, to dance beneath the diamond sky With one hand waving free Silhouetted by the sea Circled by the circus sands With all memory and fate Driven deep beneath the waves Let me forget about today Until tomorrow Hey, Mr. Time Marine Man Play a song for me I'm not sleepy And there is no place I'm going to Tambourine man play a song for me In a jingle jangle morning I come following you Take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind Down the foggy ruins of time Far past the frozen leaves the haunted, frightened trees out to the windy beach, far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. Yes, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the circus sands with all memory and fate driven deep beneath the waves. Let me forget about today until tomorrow. The master himself... The Jester on Jester Radio. You're listening to the ravings of a clown this Wednesday, July the 2nd. And whatever the fuck that means, holy crap, huh? Hey, hanging in the Jester Radio chat room with Louie. Why not stop by and say hi? A bunch of people uh, messaged in and wrote in. Um, just since we did that first story and commented about um, how uh, awesome that uh, rescue in Columbia was today. And that was... Um, part of the late feed a lot of people who you know basically stop watching the news um after the six o'clock news may not have seen that or the one about the um, 12 year old kid's body being found today because we do a late feed so all of the, uh, the both of those stories came from the eight o'clock um ap feed which a lot of people miss during the day. So that's why you always get the latest, best, uh, most uh, up-to-the-minute uh, shit here on uh, Jester Radio. 646-502-8600. Give us a call. I'm lonely in here. So lonely and so cold. And I have no pants. A Palestinian laborer driving a construction vehicle rammed into packed buses 
tossed cars in the air and rolled over pedestrians in a deadly rampage today that killed three people and wounded dozens in Jerusalem. The attacker's unusual weapon, a yellow Caterpillar front loader, transformed into a deadly assault vehicle, threatened both Israelis' sense of security and Palestinians' fragile status in the city. Hundreds of panicked people were sent running for cover before the attacker was shot dead by security forces. Three Palestinian, uh, uh, Palestinian militant groups claimed responsibility for the onslaught, the first major attack in Jerusalem in four months. I'm laughing because obviously they all three didn't do it. And that's, you know, it's one thing to commit a horrendous act and then take credit for it. It's another thing to not even do it and take credit for it. I mean, what kind of low piece of crap do you have to be to run into civilians purposefully with a Caterpillar front loader? Uh, and what kind of filthy piece of shit must you be to take credit for that if you didn't do it? However, Israeli police said the assailant, a 30-year-old Palestinian from Arab East Jerusalem, apparently acted alone. Police spokesman Mickey Rosenfeld said the man was working on a railway project in Jerusalem. The attack was a departure from militants' previous methods, which have consisted mostly of suicide bombings and shooting sprees. To our regret, the attackers do not cease coming up with new ways to strike at the heart of the Jewish people here in Jerusalem, said Mayor Uri Lapoliansky, Lupoliansky, Bella Abzug, whose daughter was on a bus rammed by the attackers. She was not injured. Israel called the attack a senseless act, and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, who is trying to negotiate a peace accord with Israel, condemned it. In Washington, the White House said President Bush called the Israeli and Palestinian leaders to express his sorrow over the incident. The rampage turned a bustling commercial district into a sense of panic and confusion. Maria Stashevsky, a 19-year-old passenger on one of the rammed buses, says she didn't know what was going on until the collision. I saw people running our way, and then the vehicle appeared, and it hit us, turning us over, she said, from her hospital bed where she was being treated for injuries to her head, legs, and back. People started landing on me, and we had to break through the windows to escape. There was blood everywhere. It's a miracle I got out. Three people were killed. Forty-five were injured, including two babies. The mother of one of the babies hurled the child out the car window to save her as the attacker bore down on the vehicle. Can you imagine such a fucking thing to have to do to hurl your baby out a window to save its life? Holy crap. The mother was also injured. The mother of the other baby, Batsheva Unterman, 33, was killed in the assault. Social workers appeared on TV frantically trying to locate the kid's father. Second dead woman was identified as Elizabeth Goren Friedman, 54, a dual Austrian-Israeli citizen who has lived in Israel for several years. The, Austri uh, the uh, Austrian foreign ministry said the third victim was some guy. Um, I guess uh, whatever their equivalent of John Doe is. Moshe Doe. The attacker began his rampage on a street near Jerusalem's central bus station, then turned left onto Jaffa Road, the city's main downtown thoroughfare, crushing everything in its path. At one point, he rammed into the back of a crowded bus, flipping it on its side. I was shocked. I saw a guy going crazy. I saw him pick up, pick it up like a toy, said Joseph Spielman, who witnessed the attack. All the people were running. They had no chance. 
The attacker was stopped only after a police officer climbed into the Caterpillar's cabin and wrestled with the driver, an off-duty soldier in a blue T-shirt and special forces officer, then jumped on the vehicle and shot the guy dead. I ran up the stairs of the vehicle when he was still driving like crazy, trying to harm civilians. I fired at him twice more, and that said he was neutralized, said Ellie Mizrahi, the anti-terror unit officer. There you go. There's that word again, neutralized. This is where they should say dead. You should say, I fired at him twice more, and his face was a pulverized, uh, you know, uh, fucking ground beef. This is where we want the blood, you morons. Not when there are Americans, but when there are the bad guys. Injured people sat dozed on the ground, uh, dazed, I should say, amid or dozed as well. Amid piles of broken glass, blood stains, and motionless bodies covered in plastic, a rescue worker stroked the hair of an elderly pedestrian, and a loved one raised the bleeding leg of a woman outside the overturned bus. Paramedics evacuated screaming babies into ambulances. The attack took place in front of a building housing the offices of the AP and other media outlets. BBC footage captured the rampage and the shootout as onlookers screamed in horror. Casilla Pereira, the office manager for AP's Jerusalem Bureau, watched the attack outside her window. I saw him, but it was too late and there was nothing to do, she said, tears in her eyes. I was in panic. I couldn't say a word. Friends identified the attacker as Hussam Dwayat, a devout Muslim and father of two, who they said had no known ties to militant groups. Everybody is in shock, said Salayan Wyatt, a friend of the man's wife. Dwayat's aunt stood on the family balcony, Uulating. This is the thing that the Muslims do. They whip themselves. And screaming, he's a martyr. Other relatives sat quietly by, and several dozen people gathered in front of the home. He did it because he knew his grandma would be out on the porch beating herself, screaming, he's a martyr. That's why these people do it. There's no coincidence. It's not a cause. It's not accidental. It's pure cause and effect. Dwight had been fined $50,000 for building a house without a permit, and then a a demolition order was on file, according to Habib Nashabibi, head of a group that defends Palestinians against these orders. That might explain Dwight's motivation in the attack, and the circumstances might also influence Israel's decision about whether to destroy the house as punishment. Later today, five military vehicles gathered outside the family's two-story home in East Jerusalem where police interviewed relatives, took pictures, and gathered evidence before leaving in a, uh, an hour later. Police said that Dwight had a criminal background, uh, but they gave uh, no details uh, of that. This has been a long-standing strategy now of the Israelis where, um, where a- after you kill yourself, they tear down your house. So it's sort of meant to be as a disincentive to kill yourself because then you'll purposely be leaving your home your your uh, your family homeless in the wake of the attack israeli media were filled with demands from hardline israelis to take steps against jerusalem's palestinians expelling them uh, expelling the families of the attackers destroying their houses refusing to employ them about two-thirds of uh, jerusalem's 700,000 residents are jews the rest are palestinians who came under israeli control when Israel captured their part of the city in 1967. Of course, they were already living there, and Israel um, captured that land that they were sitting on, fair and square, because of a war that was started by Syria. 
So they're really Syrians, uh, Syrian Israelis, but they belong to Syria. But after the war, Israel said, by the way, um, Syria, take these people back. And Syria said, we don't fucking want them. You won the land. You won the fucking the, the a- assholes on the land. So their actual own country didn't want them. But now they make believe that, you know, they have some kind of birthright to Israel as if that's their, uh, you know, point of origin, the center of their cultural beliefs. But nothing could be farther from the truth. Though Jews and Arabs have little social interaction, Palestinians perform much of the city's blue collar work. And the sides frequently come into contact in contrast to the West Bank Palestinians. Arab residents of Jerusalem have full freedom to work and travel throughout Israel. Many Jerusalem Arabs work in the construction industry. City Hall spokesman Giddy Schmerling said all East Jerusalem residents who work in construction for the cities uh, must pass a police screening. He said Dwyat worked for a private construction firm. The contractor who employed him could not be reached uh, for comment. And this further, um, you know, they, the Palestinian government uh, disavows any, you know, uh, uh, connection with him. Of course, Israel <laughs> disavows any connection with him. He's a man on his own. And although he only attacked Jews, so there's sort of this kind of um, thing that we see all the time where people who have a mental illness and want to kill other people are just quick to sort of take up a cause um, whatever sort of fits there. While this grandmother who went out and beat herself over the chest and said he's a martyr um, really believes that she would never actually martyr herself. She would never kill herself because she loves life too much. So, uh, But she'll make her children and her grandchildren feel guilty that they're not martyrs to, to make her proud. And um, so, you know, it's obviously just a tiny percentage. Not all the Palestinians are killing themselves. They all may agree with them or believe in the same thing that the terrorists do, but only really a a very tiny percentage of even, you know, jihadists and al-Qaeda and um, all these terrorist groups and the Palestinians will actually kill themselves. If they did, if they all lined up tens of thousands of them at a time and all killed themselves, then they'd win, wouldn't they? <laughs> Automatically. So, but they don't. So, yes, of, of course, I saw the irony in that, but uh, they win, but they'd all be dead. But they would certainly win and they would, doesn't matter that they're all dead. They only see life as a gateway to paradise anyway. And you're guaranteed to get there if you take down a Jew when you go. So all they got to do is all line up and kill all the Jews, and they'll all have won. Yes, they'll all be dead, but they'll have won. So this just sort of confirms, you know, my position that these people are really just psychopaths who have found a cause. The cause supports them, and this, and the cause looks for them, and recruits them, and is hoping to get as many of them that are out there as possible. But obviously, they're not all psychopaths. They may all believe in it, but they can't all bring themselves to do it. So um, conversely, these psychopaths need a cause to rationalize their behavior. You know, you have a, um, a, a a sick, sinking ache to go shoot, you know, a bunch of kids from a tower and you f- attach yourself to some doctrine or dogma or some crap that allows you to do it. 
that gives you the rationale for it. We see it time and time again. Uh, um, Timothy McVeigh was a mentally disturbed fucking psychopathic kid who wanted to kill as many people as he could and was just psychopathic and murderous until he found the, you know, anti-government, you know, uh, crap and sort of fell in with them. But he was tearing apart gophers long before he knew uh, anything about, uh, you know, Waco and the injustice of the, of the American government. He was a psychopath looking for a rationale. So while there were, you know, tens of thousands of Nazis, there was only one Goering and one Goebbels. And there's really very small percentage of even the most, you know, the, the, the organizations that are highest in the destructive rhetoric really only contain a small quantity of psychopaths. And they nurture them and they look for them. But if anything, that this should tell us is that although you know there are there are seven thousand uh, uh, seventy thousand Palestinians living in Jerusalem, but only what twelve twenty of them are willing to kill themselves. So what we need to do is obviously these other people are not psychopaths. We need to jump onto the fence with them and talk them over to our side. And treat the wackos as we would a wacko without any political. That's the mistake we're always making. Uh, when Timothy McVeigh blew up the Alfred P. Murrah building, we didn't attack Idaho or wherever the fuck he comes from. We had fucking arrested Timothy McVeigh. And that's how we should treat uh, these lunatics. Like, they're lunatics j just because they say they're doing it in the name of Allah, or they're doing it in the name of Waco, or they're doing it in the name of Adolf Hitler, doesn't mean that it's those organizations that are to blame. Those organizations are still made up of predominantly 99% non-psychopaths. John McCain put a top advisor in control of day-to-day -day campaign operations today after weeks of private concerns among Republicans that the GOP presidential campaign had not made the transition for the general election. Stephen Schmidt, a veteran of President Bush's re-election and a member of the Arizona Senator's inner circle, will oversee daily political strategy, coalition, scheduling, and communications efforts from the campaign's Northern Virginia headquarters. The campaign's estimated 300-person staff will all report to Schmidt, who will report to campaign manager Rick Davis. Davis will continue to focus on long-term planning, the vice presidential search, fundraising, and the national convention. But Schmidt's added responsibilities mean the campaign manager's load now will be somewhat lighter. Davis took the reins of the campaign almost exactly a year ago amid a major staff shakeup and has been the subject of Democratic criticism for his past lobbying work. Woe is the fucking day when we're actually talking about uh you know the 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 inner movements of a campaign <laughs> this is so twisted you know we should have a fucking dozen people uh you know uh, getting up uh and uh, you know arguing their position on various uh but all this crap like we th these uh campaigns they're like functioning corporations they're huge and when they hire and fire people, it's fucking news. 
And this is just the campaign. This is just the corporation circling around this one fucking guy. Uh, you know, we certainly have this uh, 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 culture of personality in this country. We're not really voting for somebody based on his qualifications. We're not really electing somebody based on their uh, ability to perform the job. We're just electing them based on how much we like them. The stupidest reason to hire somebody. Meanwhile, John McCain denied a Republican colleague's claim that he roughed up an associate of Nicaraguan presidential uh, President Daniel Ortega on a diplomatic mission in 1987, saying the allegation was simply not true. Now, here's an example where he might want to take that, because this is a cool thing. Senator Thad Cochran, the Republican from Mississippi, told a Mississippi newspaper that he saw McCain during a trip to Nicaragua, Nicaragua, led by former Senator Bob Dole, grab an Ortega associate by his shirt collar and lift him out of the chair. And man, if you've ever seen the, you know, uh, uh, the, the reporters that travel around with this guy and his offhand remarks, you could see sometimes, man, he gets this fucking, fucking clenches his teeth and sneers at people. You know, man, he's got something brewing there that's nasty. The Republican presidential contender, who's known for his hot temper, was questioned about the alleged incident in a news conference today. He noted that at the time he had been asked to co-chair a Central American working group in the Senate with Democrat Chris Dodd and had made several trips to the region in that role. I had many, many meetings with the Sandinistas, McCain said. I must say I did not admire the Sandinistas much, but there was never any of that anything of that nature. It just didn't happen. His comments did not square with Cochran's detailed recollection of the alleged incident. McCain was down at the end of the table, and we were talking to the head of the guerrillas uh, group there at the end of the table, and I don't know what attracted my attention, Cochran said in an interview with the Sun-Herald in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, but I saw some kind of quick movement at the uh, bottom of the table, and I looked down there, and John had reached over and grabbed this guy by the shirt collar and had snatched him up like he was throwing him out of his chair and uh, telling him what he thought about him or whatever. I don't know what he was telling him, but I thought, good grief. Everybody around here has got guns, and we're on a diplomatic mission. I don't know what happened to provoke him, but he obviously got mad at the guy, and he just reached over there and snatched him. Asked why Cochran raised the incident now, his spokesman, uh, spokeswoman Margaret Phillips told Jester Radio today, I think Senator Con uh, Cochran went in uh, to as much detail on Monday as is necessary to make the point that though Senator McCain has some problems with his temper, he's overcome them. What? That was his point? <laughs> it's just amazing. It's just amazing. What You know, there's really very little that offends me. You know, I'm not offended by people talking about God or no God or this, you know, or any of my beliefs. But the one still thing that irks me, and I know it's my problem. I got to fix it. But the one thing that still fucking irks me is when people lie to you. And you know they're lying to you. And they know that you know they're lying to you. And they're perfectly okay with that. They go, yeah. She says, yeah, listen, whatever it was that he said, I think it's perfectly clear that he made his point that although Senator McCain had problems in the past with his temper, he has obviously overcome them. 
Like, where in what this guy said is that the lesson of the day? And you know it's not, you disingenuous cunt. How could you fucking stand there and say it is? And everybody just sort of laughs and jots down notes, and it's just a spin party. Nothing ever true ever gets said anymore. Authorities ordered the remaining residents of Big Sur, the uh, scenic coastal community, to leave today because of an out-of-control wildfire, one of hundreds in California, had jumped a fire line and was threatening more homes. Lulu was just there the other day. She was running up and down the Big Sur um, naked. Flames raged in the hills above and ash fell from orange skies as evacuees and pack cars streamed along uh, uh, Highway 1, the only major road out of Big Sur. Sheriff's deputies told residents they needed to leave the area by late afternoon. The fire is just a big raging animal now, said Darby Marshall, spokesman for the Monterey County Office of Emergency Services. The Big Sur blazes one of more than 1,100 wildfires, mostly ignited by lightning, that have scorched 680 square miles and destroyed 60 homes and buildings across Northern California since June 20th. Now mandatory evacuation notices were issued today for a 10-mile stretch along Highway 1. Authorities have closed a total of 25 miles of the scenic roadway, blocking access to popular resorts, restaurants, shops, and art galleries that attract tourists from around the world. The blaze had destroyed 16 homes. Imagine fucking arriving in from Tokyo with the family. You know, you, you, you weren't listening, obviously, to local, you know, L.A. news that morning. And they get to the hotel and they go, yeah, you have to stay at the, you know, airport, uh, Hilton, because fucking Big Sur is closed. The blaze had destroyed. It's like that uh, Chevy Chase movie, you know, when they all get to Wally World and it's closed. The blaze had, the blaze had destroyed 16 homes. Charred about 81 square miles of forest uh, since it was started by lightning on June 21st in the Los Padros National Forest. It was only about 3% contained. The new evacuation notice means that all the uh, roughly 850 residents who live along the Big Sur Coast, from Andrew Malera State Park to Limekin uh, State Park, have been ordered to get the fuck out. Jana Fournier, a Big Sur resident for eight years, was headed back to her house to retrieve artwork and rescue her pet tarantula. I feel sad for the wilderness and the people who lost their homes, Fournier said. We chose to live in a wilderness among all this beauty, so I know that's a chance you always take. Wow, there you go. Very fucking zen-like of uh, Ms. Fournier. Helicopters hauling large containers of water droned loudly. You know, I, I, I mean, I say that. I, my heart's breaking for these people. I always feel awful when I hear about people losing their home. It's just such a horrible thing to lose your home, to be, you know, without a home. Even if you have all the family and friends in the world, and some of us don't have any of those things. Some of us would really, you know, basically have our fucking cars, and that's it. But a lot of times when... People's homes are destroyed, you hear, I don't see no FEMA down here giving me free cheese and giving me a free house. You know, right away people start bitching and moaning how the government's not doing enough and complaining about it somehow. And here's a situation where the government really is not doing enough. They pick and choose the fires that they can fight. They're not doing enough only because they can't do enough. Um, you know, we're spending between Afghanistan and Iraq 
um, through 2011 will have spent $850 billion on those two uh, phony wars. And so, of course, we don't have the money at home. What would it, how much money would it take? If you were a fucking, you know, Bill Gates, and I said to you, you know, and he came out and said, you know, money's no object. Put out that fire. You can be fucking uh, uh, damn tootin'. That fire would be out sooner than later. It would still be hard, but with, you know, more resources uh, and more money, then you get the job done better. And uh, our government is poor right now. We're in a state of uh, sacrifice. You know, just like in World War II, where the women couldn't, uh, you know, uh, wear stockings because they needed the silk for uh, the parachutes and they, you know, you only got sugar on Tuesdays or whatever the fuck, you know, we had to give something up because we were at war, which was an actual war since a bunch of slanty-eyed fucks came and dropped a fucking bomb on us when no one was looking. But this phony baloney war is taking a, is, will, will, will cost this country... At the very least, the the basement price, if we pull out today, $850 billion. So just think of all the fucking fires we could be putting out, all the fucking shit that we could be doing. Just think of all the, uh, the, the, the beautiful things that we could do with that money. You're listening to the ravings of a clown on Jester Radio, hanging in the chat room. With tonic water, Lulu, and yours truly, why not stop by if you got a pair? 646-502-8600 gets you live on the air with your old pal. Give us a call. Tell us what your thoughts and feelings are about this. It's uh, time for a break, and uh, for that I give you uh, Jackson Brown. Oh, how sad the sound of songs the queen must sing of dying, prisoner upon her throne. Please don't fuck with that dial. You're tuned into the ravings of a clown on Jester Radio, coming to you from a secret location outside your universe. Oh, how sad they sound the songs the queen must sing of dying. The prisoner upon her throne The melancholy sighing If she could see her mirror now She would be free of those who bow And scrape the ground beneath her feet Silently she walks among her Dying midnight roses And watches as each moment goes That never really knows it And so it seems she doesn't care If she has dreams of no one there Within the shadows of her Back of the birds I sent to fly the 
And I'm weary of the nights I've seen inside these empty Just how things are 
husbands for your sake And take a bottle full of rye Four and twenty blackbirds in a cake And bake them all in a pie They told me you missed me you missed school today so what i suggest you just throw it all away the handbags and the glad rags that your poor old granddad had to sweat to buy you rod stewart on jester radio from before he sucked the jester himself um and a thousand clowns uh, that i wrote uh, back in the year 1793 when we were just ch- children from my good bud and you know godfather of my journey uh tonic water when i first you know many of you have been listening to me for the past decade and know that uh, when i was in my youth i went to this uh, drug rehab uh, therapeutic community uh place out on long island that was sort of although i've been you know in therapy since i was five um it was sort of the beginning of my adult journey of mental health and because the people that I met there were not the you know kind of therapists that I had had these sort of uptight suit and tie kind of people that mostly had like foreign accents and were very weird and that I really couldn't relate to by strong contrast when I came in for my interview at the program I was met by uh, tonic water who was a baby himself at the time I you know I was uh, 14 years old, 13 going on 14, and he was 24. And uh, although to me, of course, he was a g- grown man, but um, he was just a baby himself. In fact, he was just a, in in um, 
proba- like a um, probation at the program as a staff member. He was like a new guy, and he didn't even have his own group. He was a co-group leader with an, with another staff member there that had been there since the beginning of the program. And, uh, he, you know, he sort of had this kind of very laid back, you know, this is a very uh, strange kind of mixture of personalities this guy has because he kind of embodies a whole bunch of things. Right away, the first two things you notice about him is that he's very quiet and that he's really intelligent. So he only opens his mouth when he got something to say, and it's always something really good. So in this situation where he was the interviewer and he had to talk, he was just like a just a very um, um, very quiet, calm, cool, non-judgmental, non-you know sneering, you know, just very clinical, but kind of in a way warm and sensitive, although. He's got this real kind of uh, grizzled toughness about him. Even at the tender age of 24, it came across. And if you asked him a question, he wouldn't say yes. He would say, eh, as if to say, why are you making me move a muscle to answer such a stupid fucking question, you moron you? But he would say it in a kind of very subtle way. So he was at once very scary and really intriguing and interesting and in a way comforting and warm and sensitive. He seemed like that way, even right there, the first meeting. And was to find out years later that he is, in fact, you know, basically virtually my soulmate when it comes to the level, the depth of his intensity and heaviness matched to only by yours truly and all the the folks that i've met over the years and like bob dylan said i've seen a lot of people so um but in this interview he was like you know so uh, what kind of uh, drugs have you taken in the past and i just list what kind of drugs are, and he just nods his head and just kind of jots some notes and he says um what's the thing that bothers you the most about your life? And I don't know what the fuck I said. Maybe, you know, my parents are really... And he just quietly nods and, you know, sort of like not you fag, but it's almost in a way like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, we hear a lot of that. There's a lot of that going around. Yeah, that sucks for you. Well, we're going to look at that and we're going to take care of that. You know, had all of that going on with that kind of nod, you know? Sort of a compassionate... And in the middle of this interview, in bursts... This guy who looks like that uh, saucier character from, uh, you know, um, Apocalypse Now, (laughs) that New Orleans, you know, big fucking bushy, tall, skinny, lanky, you know, like Jesus Christ figure with long brown hair down to his ass, straight, stringy the Jesus Christ beard and mustache thing going, and he runs in, and he goes, who the fuck are you? What the fuck is going on? He snatches the fucking paper up from Tonic Water's hand, and he goes, what, you never shot heroin? So I said, no, I never shot heroin. And he goes, you don't know what you missed. And he throws the paper down, and he storms out of the room. And I said, Tonic Water... So who the fuck was that? He goes, uh, that's the uh, assistant director of the program. 
So I was lucky, you know, because uh, whenever you came into the program, you were assigned to somebody's group. And I was assigned to Tonic Water and his co-group leader, um, who I'm still friends with to this day. She's a very nice lady. But when time came, after about 10 months, when time came for Tonic Water to finally sort of branch out on his own uh, and go form his new group, I turned to the other co-group leader, the woman there, and I said, I would like to sort of go off with Tonic Water when he starts his own group. I want to go with him, be part of his group. And she had this sort of like, and on looking back, I feel bad because I must have really hurt her feelings. I mean, she was an amazing therapist and caring, you know, wonderful, you know, tough-ass fucking broad. Um, still is. Um, but, I, you know, the Tonic Water was my fucking, you know, understood me. And he really, really understood me. And I needed to have him as my therapist. So I went out on a limb and I said, you know, I, uh, I want to go with him. And she kind of like had this like dog that got, just got kicked in the puppy that got kicked in the nose kind of look. And um, I thought quick and I said, you know, he's going to be on his own over there and he's going to need help. He's going to need a hand with the other group members there. He's going to not have anybody in the group to help him out with the helping. And that's all. I mean, I would stay. Naturally, I'd stay. And she was like, you know what? Just get the fuck <laughs> Good try, dick face. But although uh, Tonic and I over the years, you know, have sort of, uh, you know, sometimes we saw each other every, you know, year or twice a year. And sometimes we went years without seeing each other. And along the way, we just, uh, you know, it's been over three decades, and he's still basically my rabbi, my, you know, the, 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 who I think of as the godfather of my journey, who without whom there is no chance that I would be, you know, the guy I am today. Uh, and I'm not even exaggerating a little bit. Grappling with a record death toll in an overshadowed war, President Bush promised today to send more U.S. troops into Afghanistan by year's end. He conceded that June was a tough month in the nearly seven-year-old war. Great uh, term for that because it was, in fact, the deadliest month for U.S. troops in Afghanistan since the war began. One reason why there have been more deaths is because our troops are taking the fight to a tough enemy, an enemy who doesn't like our presence there because they don't like the idea of America denying safe haven for terrorists, Bush told reporters. Of course there's going to be resistance. What? What the fuck did he just say? You mean they're only now just taking the fight to the tough enemy? What the fuck have they been doing up until now then? Why have all those fucking people been dying for the past six years? And if they haven't, then why haven't they been? Why haven't they been playing their fucking A game since the fucking, you know, the second they landed, pulling off these fucking stunts like these, you know, fucking Sandinistas just did in Colombia today. Take a lesson, man. We got to find that fucking spick who pulled off that fucking job today in Colombia without a single bullet being shot he saved fucking 35 prisoners lives some of whom were had been hostages for 12 years that's how you fucking pull an operation my friend so this is bush's answer to why it's been a quote-unquote tough 
month because they're taking it to the tough enemy? What is this, a fucking football game? Bush said it was a tough month, too, for the Taliban. But the once toppled Islamist regime in Afghanistan have now rebounded with deadly force. So either he's hasn't read the newspaper or what's more likely he's lying through his fucking teeth like every word out of his mouth is more u.s and nato troops have died in the past two months in afghanistan than in iraq a place with triple the number of u.s and coalition forces in june 28 u.s troops died in afghanistan that was the highest monthly total of the entire war which began in October of 2001. For the full U.S.-led coalition in Afghanistan, the death toll was 46, also the highest of the war. Bush confronted the grim direction of the Afghanistan conflict during a sun-splashed Rose Garden appearance. The president used the event to tout his agenda for an upcoming Group of Eight meeting in Japan with world leaders, then addressed Iran, climate change, and gasoline prices in a short Q&A session with the reporter. So what he's doing is what my Uncle Rick used to call hocking it in. He knows that, that he's just a puppet for his fucking lunatic, right-wing, scary-ass fucking religious, you know, nut jobs. And they pull his strings and he fucking does what they tell him to do. And they're telling him, put as many fucking U.S. troops in the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, we don't care. We could shuffle them around once they're there. But get them in there because it takes six times as long to bring a soldier out of conflict than it does to put him in. And they fucking know that. And if it takes a year to fucking bring forces in, it takes six years to bring them out. Mark my words, that's a fact. Ask any military guy. Takes a long time, man. You got a lot of shit set up there. The army always pulls in and starts setting up shop like they're there to stay. And of course, in Iraq, they really are. So packing shit up always takes a lot longer. And you can't leave without the shit. We can't just abandon the shit. Hey, you've been listening to the Ravings of a Clown on Jester Radio this Wednesday, July the 2nd, hanging in the chat room with Tonic Water and Louie. Why not stop by and say hi, me? I'm just sitting on my own all by myself, wondering what there is to do. Come on and join me over here for some uh, Cat Stevens before he sucked on Jester Radio.
the strength to stop Oh, I'm not making love to anyone's wishes Only for that light I see Cause when I'm dead and Lord, Lord, in my grave That's gonna be the only thing that's left of me Gonna wind up where you started from There was only one catch And that was Catch-22 Which specified that a concern for one's own safety In the face of dangers that were real and immediate Was the process of a rational mind or was crazy and could be grounded. All he had to do was ask. And as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy and would have to fly more missions. Or would be crazy to fly more missions and sane if he didn't. But if he was sane, he had to fly them. If he flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to. But if he didn't want to, he was sane and had to. Yesarian was moved very deeply by the absolute simplicity of this clause of Catch-22, and let out a respectful whistle. That's some catch, that catch-22, he observed. It's the best there is, Dr. Nika agreed. Yossarian saw it clearly in all its spinning reasonableness. There was an elliptical precision about its perfect pairs of parts that was graceful and shocking, like good modern art. And at times, Yossarian wasn't quite sure that he saw it.
back. Chunk a chunk. Midnight Oil on Just Radio, the unplugged version of that. Alan Arkin before that and his uh, brilliant uh, read of the uh, line from Catch-22. That's a hell of a catch, that Catch-22. Cat Stevens started that set just sitting. That was from back before he sucked. Hey, you're listening to the Ravings of a Clown this Wednesday, July the 2nd. The year of our Lord, 2008, hanging in the Jester Radio chat room with my buds, my peeps, my homies. Why not stop by and say hi? There's a crazy drunk, and there's a pastor's wife. A government watchdog wants to see whether it can discipline Justice Department officials who improperly rejected liberal Ivy Leaguers and other top law students for plum jobs, or take action against those who benefited from having GOP roots. The inquiry by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel comes amid a class action lawsuit by one of the law students who was denied even an interview for one of the jobs, despite having worked for the Justice Department the year before. Similar lawsuits against the department are expected. An internal Justice Department investigation last month concluded that politics and ideology disqualified a significant number of newly graduated lawyers and summer interns seeking the coveted justice jobs in 2006. The report marked the culmination of a year-long investigation into whether Republican politics were driving hiring policies at the once fiercely independent department. In a June 27 letter, Deputy Special Counsel James Byrne said his office's inquiry could result in seeking more severe disciplinary action against department officials than that proposed or taken by justice. Additionally, corrective action could impact current attorneys hired through the honors program if political affiliation was considered in their selections. He wrote to Justice Inspector General Glenn Fine and the Office of the Professional Responsibility Council, Marshall Jarrett. And the uh, letter was obtained today by uh, Jester Radio. 
So apparently this, um, and this is what I've been saying all along, you know, this is why it's not a fair fight. This is why you have a conservative government, even though the majority of the people are liberal-minded, they're open-minded, they're open to new ideas. Um, part of that sort of, you know, philosophy of being liberal is this sort of, um, I won't say naivete, I'll, uh, I'll say sort of, um, um, in a way, innocence and idealism about um, the, you know, the a really uh, true democracy, an open, uh, honest dialogue. And uh, I think that sort of goes hand in hand with being a liberal. Um, you sort of see, you know, the world is made up of honorable men, and, you know, you, you sort of hope for the best. And the Republicans, on the other hand, just fight fucking dirty. They have no qualms about it being... Uh, a war about it being us against them filthy fucking liberals if you listen to um conservative radio which i do all day long you know a lot of my material comes from you know hunkering down with the other side that's how i get you know a lot of my opinions is by listening to the opinions of people who are very stupid and scary and dangerous and uh, people like Rush Limbaugh, who create this whole, you know, sick, stupid fucking anarchy trick about this thing that he did recently about uh, uh, getting Republicans to go into uh, Democratic primaries and vote for Obama so that because Obama was more beatable than Hillary. Uh, and he likes it's basically like ground war to these fucking sick people. So, of course, they would fucking infiltrate the Justice Department. This is the Justice Department. This is that the fucking naked lady with the blindfold on her eyes holding the scales. This is supposed to be the uh, nexus of fairness of our society, the center, the hub of um, bipartisanship, of nonpartisanship, of, of just... Uh, you know, blind um, conviction of uh, of uh, ethics, and now we find that they have, out of hand, rejected you know dozens, maybe hundreds of applicants, you know, merely because they looked like you know liberal, homo, New York faggot Jews, and they would be of no use to them there. Orders to U.S. factories turned in the slowest performance in three months in May as a surge in demand for commercial aircraft was not enough to offset weaknesses in auto, heavy machinery, and steel. Factory orders rose by 0.6% in May, less than half the gains turned in during April and March, the Commerce Department reported today. It was the poorest showing since factory orders had fallen by 0.4% in February. Analysts said the figures for the past three months have been uh, inflated by big increases in the cost of refined petroleum and related products, such as chemicals, which have been soaring because of the rising costs of global oil prices. Oil hit a new record today, climbing to above $144 per barrel. Global Insight, a major economic forecasting firm, said it was boosting its forecast for the high, uh, how high oil will go this year, predicting 
that West Texas Intermediate crude will hit $160 a barrel in December. So forget about this fantasy that the gas is going to go back down after the summer like it usually does. It's not. It's going to continue to go up. It's going to go up to $7 a gallon. And, you know, this is the heartbreaker of it. It was all part of the plan. And we're going to, you know, get into that soon enough. But um, weakening the U.S. dollar and crushing the U.S. economy um, and, again, putting us in an insufferable position, just like they did with this phony baloney war uh, with uh, onshore attacks and this uh, eminent boogeyman hovering, you know, over our shore, um, this uh, evil administration rushed in uh, to um, this, uh, you know, place of, of sadness and shock and did their evil deeds. And we woke up the next day and we found that our first, fourths, fifths, amendments and variety of other codicils of the Constitution had been canceled. And we all just fucking uh, stuck our thumbs up our ass and we said, well, you know, we've got to got to be safe you know there's a guy over there with a turban and you know so it's okay if they fucking you know grab my dick every time i want to get on an airplane <sighs> hey uh, don't fuck with that doll you're listening to the ravings of a clown this wednesday july the 2nd 646-502-8600 gets you live on the air we were so close there was no room we bled inside each other's wounds Melanie on Jester Radio, please don't touch that dial. It gets good. Starting right now.
Swamps of Bakersfield, 
Mungo Jerry in the summertime. Del Shannon. Before that, in Runaway, Melanie started that set with Lay Down Candles in the Rain. You're listening to the Ravings of a Clown. This Wednesday, July the 2nd, extra, extra special thanks go out to all those of you who tuned in this evening, including Louie and V and Espo and Tonic Water. And uh, for all those requests, hope we got to them all. I'm sure we didn't mention all your names, but you know who you are. You devils, you. Um, and uh, Bob the Engineer has asked me to remind you if you've missed any portion of this evening's show, it will be recast at 2 a.m. and then again 2 p.m. following all times Eastern. And also uh, they have this podcast thing now. If you go to justaradio.com and click on podcast or something there, you can get hooked up with that. And that way you could take Jester Radio with. Or you, if you missed a show, you can download it and listen to it right there on your PC. And there's a bunch of other cool things you could do at the website. And while you're there, don't forget to click on that donate button. Just from what I understand, if you just keep mashing it, like just keep hitting it over and over again, I think we get like a buck each time you do that or something. So I know Bob gets very upset that I don't do a serious plug for the money and tell you like, oh, if you don't. But, you know, the truth is we're doing this for 10 years now. And a lot of the the time you weren't given squat. So the truth is we're going to fucking do this whether you hit that button or not. If you feel like it's a good thing for you to do, then please don't feel like I'm undermining you just because I'm not begging we really, really do appreciate it, and it's really important to us. Um, and hopefully it makes you feel like, you know, you're part of the, you know, deal here, because you are. And uh, But I just don't do that begging thing, and I know that's part of the reason why you're there. A New Zealand man has put his soul up for auction to the highest bidder, noting that it's a merry old soul rather than a funk soul brother. <laughs> But he would like to think there's still a little bit of funk in there somewhere. Walter Scott, 24, put his soul up for sale on New Zealand Internet auction site Trade Me and so far has received more than 100 expressions of interest. Bids in the auction, which are to close tomorrow, have reached $189 late today. Scott said he's been thinking about selling his soul for quite a while. I can't see it, touch it, or feel it, but... I can sell it. So I'm going to palm it off to the highest bidder, he said. It was in pretty good nick, except for a rough patch six years ago when he reached the legal drinking age, he said. Advice from a lawyer was that the winning bidder would not be entitled to anything but Scott's soul and would not be able to own or control him in any way. The successful bidder would receive a frame deed of soul ownership. Trade Me business manager Michael O'Donnell said the auction complied with the state's rules because physical object, the deed of ownership, would change hands. I think he's entered into the spirit of the online community. He's also responded to our request to have a physical thing for sale. He's put together a nice-looking deed for ownership, uh, according to uh, O'Donnell. He's answered the questions in a straightforward manner with humor and personality. I think it's unlikely that anyone's going to be misled by that auction. Back in 2001, 20-year-old U.S. University student Adam Bertel tried unsuccessfully to sell his soul on uh, eBay, bidding it reached $400 before the auction was pulled and the company ruling something tangible needed to swap hands. Last month, you may recall, an Australian man uh, sold his entire life, including his house, 
and his job um, and, uh, you know, all the shit in his house um, after his marriage broke up. And he sold that for $383,000. So we've been seeing quite a bit of this, uh, people selling off. I guess it's just a matter of time before we start selling off, you know, parts of ourselves. There's laws against it, but those laws are stupid. So nobody has the right to tell me what my fucking parts of my body are worth. Just like prostitution is stupid. If a chick wants to you suck a guy's dick for money, I, 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 you know what? I honestly believe there's no fucking higher calling in the land. Quite honestly. I, I got to tell you, the shit they say about soldiers and teachers, fuck that, man. It's the whores. God bless them, everyone. And I hate to think of a world, at least in my youth, in the pre-AIDS 80s, fucking, you know, Studio 54 days, uh, that, uh, anyway. Uh, police say a South Florida woman stole a couple's cat to get them to return her dog. Linda Euroista's black Labrador was recently picked up by animal control officers and later adopted by Judah Holler and her her husband. Holler learned a couple of weeks later that Euroista had been to the shelter looking for the dog. Holler says she'd considered returning the animal until she met her, this Euroista woman who yelled and threatened to sue. Probably because she didn't quickly hand over the dog. She probably went to the door and said, I hear you have my dog. And she said, well, now come now. Let's talk about this. And she said, talk about what? Hand over the fucking dog. And then, you know, people use that as an excuse to, like, slam the door. You know, one's got nothing to do with the other. The fact that she's hollering has nothing to do with the fact that she's entitled to her dog. A few days later, the couple realized the cat was missing. Police said Yuri Osti left a phone message. Very smart woman, apparently, with the hollers saying that she had their cat and was willing to trade in for the dog. <laughs> Police charged Uriosti with theft and extortion. Did she not understand that was illegal, or did she just think what? That anybody would go along with her? She was released from jail on a $6,000 bond, so she's running around now. The Pulaski County, Virginia courthouse is almost free of fleas that had hitched a ride on an opossum that was found dead between the floorboards in early June. Workers started to complain that the pests were biting them and the defendants. Assistant County Administrator Robert Hiss said the problem was primarily confined to the first floor, which holds offices that include court clerks and a general district courtroom. During a search, a maintenance worker was drawn by a strong foul odor. Hmm. Coming from underneath the first floor, there he found the dead opossum covered in fleas. With the carcass removed and another dusting of chemicals, Hiss reports that the flea problem has greatly diminished. For good measure, another treatment might be done over the uh, coming holiday weekend. Hymns are being replaced at funerals in one Australian city by popular rock classics like Zepp's Stairway to Heaven and ACDC's Highway to Hell. <laughs> Play that at my funeral. You know what? I don't want a funeral, but when you get together after I die to talk and praise me, play that one. Uh, at Centennial Park, the largest cemetery and crematorium in the southern city of Adelaide, only two hymns still rank among its top ten most popular funeral songs, Amazing Grace and Abide With Me. <laughs> Leaving the uh, Leading the funeral chart is crooner Frank Sinatra's classic hit, My Way, 
followed by Louis Armstrong's version of A Wonderful World. The Led Zeppelin and ACDC rock anthems rank outside the top ten, but have gained ground in recent years as more Australians give up traditional Christian hymns. Some of the more unusual songs we hear actually work very well within the service because they represent the person's character, said Centennial Park Chief Executive Brian Elliott. Among other less conventional choices are... um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life by Monty Python. Uh, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. (laughs) No. Uh, Hit the Road, Jack. Another One Bites the Dust. And I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Warren Zevon. Remember that name. Z-E-V-O-N. We'll be back to say goodbye. Please don't fuck with that dial. On a long, lonely highway east of Omaha, you can listen to the engine moaning out its one lone song. You can think about a woman or the girl you knew the night before. But your thoughts will soon be wandering the way they always do. When you're riding 16 hours and there's nothing much to do. And you don't feel much like riding. You can listen to the engine moaning out as one old song You can think about the woman or the girl you knew the night before But your thoughts will soon be wandering the way they always do When you're riding 16 hours and there's nothing much to do And you don't feel much like riding You just wish the trip was through Mm. See, here I am On the road again There I am Up on the stage Here I go Playing star again There I go, turn the page. Well, you walk into a restaurant, strung out from the road, and you feel the eyes upon you. As you're shaking off the cold You pretend it doesn't bother you But you just want to explode Most times you can't hear them talk Other times you can All the same old cliches Is that a woman or a man? You always seem outnumbered You don't dare make a stand Here I am On the road again There I am Up on the stage Here I go Playing star again
energy You try to give away As the sweat pulls out your body Like the music that you play With the echoes from the amplifiers ringing in your head You smoke the day's last cigarette Remembering what she said Ah, here I am On the road again There I am Up on the stage Here I go, playing star again. There I go, turn the page. Ah, here I am, on the road again. There I am, on the stage. Here I go, playing star again. There in the distance, in the spotlight, you're a million miles away. Every ounce of energy you try and give away as the sweat pours out your body like the music that you play. Later in the evening, as you lie awake in bed, the echo from the amplifiers ringing in your head, you smoke the day's last cigarette, remembering what you said. Now, here I am. On the road again. There I am up on the stage. Here I go, playing the star again. There I go. Turn the page. Bob Seeger on Jester Radio. And you know, man, don't I fucking know it. Jeez, you know, because when I come. <laughs> But I'm done with a show. Like this, and I lay down in my bed smoking the day's last cigarette in my bed. How disgusting is that? And I remember what I said, and I, you know, here I am, you know, uh, turn the page. <laughs> All right, so not as many people are listening as are listening to a Bob Seeger concert, perhaps. But the principle. Is still the same. Hey, you've been listening to the Ravings of a Clown this Wednesday, July the 2nd, and I'm afraid we're out of time. Happened so quickly. These are my best two hours of my day, and I sure uh, do appreciate you spending a little bit of your day with us here at Jester Radio. And on behalf of Bob the Engineer, Dolly the Receptionist, and all those of us here at the station, thanks so very much for stopping by. You just uh, can't know how much it means to us. Be well. Be happy. Remember, be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Don't make assumptions. And always do your best. That's the most important thing. We will meet in that place where darkness never comes. That's my solemn oath to you. Until that time, Houston, I leave you in the good and kind hands of 
the folks. Good night. See you tomorrow. Every time we meet, everything is sweet. Oh, you're so tender, I must surrender. My love is your love now. Sunday chime and if I knew